Well, welcome back to Almost Heretical. I'm really excited because today we're starting a brand new series, and we're going to be talking about the formation of the canon. So, Shelby, what are we going to be going over? Yeah, we are going to focus on the, the history, the context, the culture around the development of specifically the New Testament canon. Um, the content of this series is kind of based on a course that I've taught in the past, and it's just information that I remember learning um, in my, even some of it just in intro classes in my undergrad at university, and then some of the master's program. But I remember just being blown away by how much, this is just basic information about the formation of this book that we take so seriously in the Christian world. Um, and I couldn't believe that I hadn't learned it before. So this has honestly been a passion of mine for years now to to get this specific information about how the New Testament canon was formed into the hands of people who actually use the New Testament, because I feel like it's something that all of us should know. Okay, so if you could go back and talk to yourself before you took those classes on canon, because I think a lot of people listening, like me, you know, we know a little bit about formation of the canon, um, but it's it's not much, right? So if you could if you could talk to that person, that that version of Shelby that um, that hasn't taken those classes yet, to these listeners who maybe don't know what they're going to be getting into. I mean, it could sound a little bit boring, right? Like we're going to be talking about the canon. Like, why is this exciting? Like, what could this change for someone? Well, to me, it's exciting because it follows um, kind of a cyclical pattern that I think we've even maybe talked about in other series or in other episodes where where you start with you know, the, the knowledge or the assumptions that you currently have. And then you're given a new piece of information and that piece of information can feel like it just blows apart um, what you had previously believed and often in a kind of scary way. But then as you learn more about that piece of information and you slowly integrate it into the way you think and you slowly maybe realize that um, it's not as threatening as it seemed, then you kind of come back around to just a, a more comfortable and of, often more honest way of coming at the Bible. And so that process happened for me over and over and over again as I've been studying the canon. And I think specifically for people in this topic, the the whole concept of how how is inspiration or divine influence somehow part of the process or not part of the process. When I learned about the formation of the canon, I think I was taken aback by just how human of a process it was, which many of the listeners of this show will already be very kind of comfortable with that idea, but many may not, or may just be wondering, like, where where is the overlap? How, how does God come into this? How do humans come into this? And is there any way for us to, to piece that apart? And we're going to get into all of those things in this series. Okay, well, I'm excited. And um, I guess, where do we start? Like, when you think about the canon, think about forming the canon, like, where where does this whole journey start? Well, in this specific episode, we're going to start by laying the groundwork with some terminology. Um, after that, just go over a basic timeline of the formation of the, or the writing of the books of the New Testament, um, and then look at a couple case studies of why understanding that timeline matters. So that's kind of what we're going to go over today. And we're going to start with some very important terms. Specifically, let's start with just the word Bible. Does the word Bible actually occur in the Bible? I don't think so. <laughs> Just in my like rough, uh, you know, rough overview there. I, I don't feel like it ever says that word, a lot in English at least. Yeah, you're correct. So of course, in Greek, 
um, the word Bible, it's biblio, which literally just means book. It doesn't, it doesn't mean like the Holy Bible in the way we think of it today. It just is, it's the same word for book. So of course the word book occurs throughout the New Testament, but it's never used in like the, the sacred scripture, Holy Bible way that we use the word. So I, I say that and start off with that to reemphasize a fact that we've talked about on, on the show before, which is just that the concept of the Bible as a unit did not exist to the writers of these texts. So as we look through the different um, books or texts, manuscripts that go into the canon, like we have to keep in mind that there is no such thing as the Bible in any of these writers' minds. And I feel like that we all know that. And even people that aren't, you know, in the same place as listeners of this show, maybe people from our, you know, past churches or past lives that we've been a part of, they know that, right? But then when you actually get into a conversation, we're talking about, you know, that isn't that verse in Revelation, right? Where it's like, don't, you know, don't add any dot mm-hmm. or iota or whatever to this book, right? Mm-hmm. Like for some reason, then when you, those verses get used to say, they're talking about the Bible here and they're saying, don't add to this Bible. And you're adding to this Bible because you're coming up with these new theologies or these mm. new doctrines. It's like, no, wait, that's not what that's saying because they didn't even have a picture of <laughs> yeah. Bible at that time. So don't yeah. use that as an argument, right? Yes, that's a great point. Obviously, that verse was referring to just the the book of Revelation itself. Although, I mean, even that is um, quite a quite an interesting topic, the book of Revelation. We'll actually, we'll get to the, get to that book eventually through, through this series. It's one of the more interesting ones as far as its process of being added to the New Testament. But yeah, you're right that that's not the concept they had in mind. And even every reference to scripture doesn't mean the same thing as we usually mean it. Um, scripture is referenced all throughout the Old and New Testament. Um, but when we use it today, we pretty much use it synonymously with the word Bible. Like you could say, you know, have you been reading the Bible? Have you been in the scriptures? You basically, we, all, we know what we're talking about. We mean the same 66 books. But is that what they actually meant in ancient times? Well, that's, so that's the next term I want to look at is scripture. And I guess I want to back up and how would we define scripture with, you know, maybe not with a big S and not necessarily even thinking of um, just Jewish or Christian scripture, but on a much wider, broader scale, there's scriptures of all sorts of different religions all over the world. What are maybe some words we would use to describe or define what scripture means on a broad scale? I mean, I, yeah, it's like not really a word that you throw around in your daily life, really. It's kind of a strange word. And because of that, I think it uh, connotations for me are like, special or important or mm-hmm. um, specific or something like that. Like These are like important words and you need to pay attention to them. Yeah, I think of the word sacred um, and it often it's very tied to cultural heritage. Um, there's something authoritative about scriptures. Um, like they, there's something about them that seems more important than other pieces of literature in that culture. And some other words that I've come up with that I think are helpful when we talk about what is scripture on a broad sense is um, the word developing. Um, I think that often the idea that scripture is these words and no more, no less is actually not a very accurate picture of of scriptures. And, and we know that because obviously, I mean, let's go back to Genesis was written, you know, hundreds, probably thousands of years before Revelation. Like this is 
um, as scripture is being written, and the Jews did see, you know, something like Genesis as scripture, but it, it, they didn't necessarily say that all scripture has been written. It's funny, even when I just said that phrase, all scripture, I think automatically we probably start thinking of the, the verse in... What, the all scripture is God-breathed and useful, that one? Yeah, I'm trying to remember if it's first or second Timothy, I should know this. Second Timothy 3.16, yeah, all scriptures God-breathed, um, which is probably one of the most important verses in the discussion of canon and inspiration and authority of scripture of the Bible, But we're and we will get to that um, when we talk about the criteria of um, this, the text included in the canon, which will be in a later episode. But yeah, those are, oh, in a later episode. But the last term I want to start with for kind of just laying the groundwork before we get into this is the word canon. It's this word that we've just been throwing around that we don't really use in normal life, but gets used a lot when we're talking about um, the specific books of the Bible. So just to quickly go over, like, what do we mean when we when we keep saying the word canon? Um, a canon, whether or not it's referring to the Christian canon, it just refers to a set of texts that are considered authoritative. Or even in a more broad sense, anything could be a canon if it's just a, a defined set. So like there's actually basically a canon of Star Wars. I mean, the Star Wars canon are the the nine episodes and anything that's added, you know, like things like Rogue One or things like the, you know, novels that are being written around Star Wars, those are not technically canon. It's, it's so, so funny. The, the parallels between the Star Wars canon and the um, biblical canon are actually uh, very accurate. And we'll probably come back to that as an analogy later on. But yeah, I, uh, I heard that word canon on uh, just like Instagram this week. <laughs> uh, they were talking about how Toy Story obviously is lower class than like Star Wars, right? But like, I mean, it's pretty high class in my opinion. <laughs> uh, but Toy Story, um, that they said in the Toy Story canon, <laughs> you will like this. Are I'm guessing one, two, three, and four. Uh, although I'm not a big fan of four, uh, but yeah. anyways, um, that's the, probably how the Jews felt about the New Testament. Too. <laughs> uh, I just feel like they could have ended after three, and I mean, this is exactly how the Jews <laughs> felt. Um, but they uh, they said that in the canon of one, two, and three, um, whenever you hear Woody's voice, it's it's Tom Hanks. But then with anything else that falls outside of canon, like video games or um, toys, toys, yeah, any any kind of like actual like plush like Woody doll where you pull the string on the back and it says the there's, there's a snake, a snake in, in my, in my exactly. boot. You're my favorite deputy. That would be that's not Tom Hanks's voice. That's that's Tom Hanks' brother's voice. Huh. And uh, but they just use that word canon. I was like, oh wow, that feels a little too important for Toy Story, but <laughs> it helped me know what they were referring to. That is that's pretty funny, but a great example. So so yeah, I think there's there's a lot of different uh, ways of using the word canon, and and then if we specifically go back to the Christian context, there's a lot of assumptions that have been built built into the word canon. Probably how most of us have grown up hearing it used um, is that when someone talks about the canon, they specifically mean the books that are inspired and therefore put in the Bible, which is a lot of assumptions built into one statement. The books that are inspired and therefore put in the Bible. And we're going to unpack why that's not necessarily historically or literarily accurate, 
But I think that's the, that's the definition of canon that I kind of grew up with. But then later on, maybe with some nuance getting added, we see the Bible as a set of texts that are considered authoritative and then made into the Bible, which is a bit more of an accurate, um, an accurate way to see it. But overall, canon itself is just a term that's never used in the Bible, and it just means uh, it's actually a standard or a rule by which other beliefs and texts and practices can be compared. So when you when you have, um, and this is something that we'll get into when we talk about early church fathers, but specific, they basically would choose books to be canon, which they can then use to compare other texts to, to decide whether those texts should be considered authoritative as well. So that's a little bit about the terms Bible, Scripture, and canon. And with that, we can start to get into the actual books of our current New Testament. Okay, you, you said New Testament there. So we're specifically looking at the New Testament canon, because I know that, um, for instance, the Catholic Old Testament would be different than the Protestant Old Testament. And mm-hmm. so there's some, some discrepancy on um, what would be considered canon. But as far as the New Testament goes, I think they both are in agreement there. Is that right? Yeah, the Catholic and Protestant New Testaments are the same. And uh, the formation of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament canon is is a fascinating topic, but it's much different in that it takes uh, a lot longer and uh, there's a lot more history and culture gone into it, whereas the formation of the, the writing of the New Testament books happened in a relatively um, quick time frame compared to the old, I mean, basically within a hundred years, whereas the old Testament took thousands of years. So, so they're very different topics to talk about. So in this series, we're just going to focus on the new Testament. So a hundred years, when, when, like, when did this actually happen? This new Testament, when was it canonized? All right, perfect. So Jesus lives around 30 AD, uh, dies around 30 AD. Um, so that's, that's a good starting point for us to, to go with. At that point, nothing is being written. Something interesting to note, Jesus is probably doing all of his teaching in Aramaic, and he's probably um, going from town to town, preaching essentially the same message over and over again, which then decades later, um, his disciples or the authors of these books will end up writing down. But for the first decades, all of those teachings are just in oral form. Which is interesting, just I think when we read these words that are in the Gospels, like here's a story about Jesus mm-hmm. or whatever. Like we, at least in my Baptist upbringing, and in a lot of the Reformed world, we spend so much time like this. You know, they use this word this instead of this wording. other word. You know, like this is the this is the exact word of Jesus. So don't try to say it's this because it's actually exactly this. Mm-hmm. And just think about it. I mean, imagine going ten or twenty years potentially, um, you know, you have this story, this thing happened to you, you've experienced this thing, and then go 10 to 20 years. I mean, it's like this, right? And I've actually heard studies about this, but um, it's like 9-11, right? This is a Mm. major event that happened in a lot of our lives that are listening. We kind of, you know, if you ask someone like, where were you? There's other things like this, but like with 9-11, everyone's got a, uh, got a, like I was, you know, I was coming down the stairs. This is mine. Like, you know, I, I heard the TV on, I was coming down the stairs and um, I remember seeing, you know, the burning tower, smoke coming out of the tower, and my parents, you know, looked concerned, and were standing in front of the TV, and then I, I figured out, you know, what was going on, and anyways, that's like, that's my story. 
and I, I have in my memory the cartoon that I was watching upstairs. I have in my memory um, like sort of what I was wearing, what my parents were wearing. But there's studies that have shown even people that were like in New York were a part of the event that was happening. They, uh, they ask them now, 15, 20 years later, you know, describe your recollection of that day. And they, they tell in detail exactly what happened. They're 100% sure this is what happened. And then they play them a recording of what they said that exact day. And there's some significant details. They weren't, they're not lying, but there's some significant mm-hmm. details that are different between those two recollections of the same event. There's something about time that, that changes what we remember. It's just a, mm-hmm. something that happens in our brains. We, we remember it slightly differently. And I'm not trying to say that these, uh, these people remembering 9-11 or the apostles that wrote down the Gospels are trying to change the story, mm-hmm. are trying to deceive us or something like that. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying they, it's, it is definitely slightly different than exactly what happened. Whether or not they're trying to write down exactly what happened or not, that's another thing. Mm-hmm. But like, let's say they are. Like, it's going to be a little bit different. This isn't the direct quote of this person because that's just not how memory works. That's not how uh, you can't you can't go 10, 15, 20 years later and and have the exact recollection of the exact event. And that's fine. What's not fine, I think, is when we then say put those words in red letters yeah exactly and say this is the exact thing base your entire existence on this and not this other way of of saying it because it's definitely not that it's this you know so anyways i just felt like i had to get that out because Mm -hmm. uh, i see that done a lot i see that used that way a lot and i think that that idea of there were decades between the words of jesus and the writing down of those words and like things change over time those I think that's one of those cyclical statements that I was kind of talking about earlier. Like when you first take that in, you're first, you know, listening to you talk about 9-11 and how even over just 20 years, people end up thinking different things than what really happened. Like we get very concerned about that, particularly I think because we live in a culture where like accuracy and factuality and being right about what really happened is is much more important than it was in an ancient world where there was no such thing as, you know, real-time reporting and there's no such thing as photographs and video. And so, so really what really happened is always going to be lost in an ancient culture. Nobody had the expectation that we're going to be able to preserve exactly what happened. Instead, their expectation is we're going to preserve the story and the message. And I think even with your example of 9-11... Like, that is still preserved. And if anything, the version that the person's telling now, 20 years later, in some ways may be more accurate in a sense that it reflects what the last 20 years have meant to that person and how the 20 years of reflecting on that day has kind of shaped the way they saw it. Certain details that they maybe didn't think of as important on September 11th, 2001, they maybe do think of as important now. And and that's part of the story. So... Changing our perspective to from um, factuality is the same as truth and shifting to seeing the story and the message as important no matter what. Like that's one of those cyclical things that took a while for me to be okay with, but I think ultimately makes us able to appreciate these texts better for what they are. Yeah, just to, to get back to that study, if anyone's interested, it's <laughs> it was done by... Uh, 
Hearst, Phelps, and uh, Vigia. Um, and it's looking... Vigia. Oh, I'm probably saying it right, wrong, but V-A-I-D-Y-A. And it's, uh, it's looking at this, this term called flashbulb memories. And this is in Journal of Experimental Psychology General. Um, I'll link it in the show notes because it's pretty fascinating. I remember reading this. Uh, it's also in Scientific American, and, and um, they did it a lot of places. But it was, it was, it was pretty fascinating. It kind of changed my perspective just to, on memory. And um, I get really into like, this is totally a tangent, but there's a lot of people that are locked up for mm. a long time because of mm. an eyewitness that is sure they saw this exact thing and they were asked about it a year later or something like that. And even within that year, your memory changes so much. I mean, they'll play someone something and they'll be like, you know, I know I was wearing a yellow shirt that day and they play them a video and they had a blue shirt on. I mean, it's that type of stuff where they're like, okay, I guess that's true. But I, you know, I could have sworn I had a yellow shirt on, you know, it's like stuff like that. It's like, wow, how does, how can you be so sure of something? And then it's so different. And this is, does not really apply here, but it does to an extent um, because we're talking about memories of these people. And if, if what we care about now is factuality, then we're just not going to get what we want <laughs> to, to get out of these texts um, because that's not what the authors cared about. And that's mm-hmm. just not possible um, with our human limitations. Yeah. And that's, that's the, the point that we need to learn to be okay with was that that's not what the authors were trying to do. And that of the story of Jesus that we love can still be there even without it necessarily being exactly factual. And one more note on, of course, the the red letter um, approach to the words of Jesus throughout the Gospels um, is why I first mentioned that his teaching was almost certainly done in Aramaic, which means that even by the time these Gospels are written, it's already been translated, which means that we really don't have any of the exact words of Jesus, which, again, one of those cyclical statements could sound really scary at first, but I think is actually very freeing because it does open us up to not have to be stuck on like, okay, he used this exact verb and this exact adjective because he wasn't even speaking that language. Um, And so I think ultimately it actually gives us a lot more freedom. And I mean, if if we want to look at, you know, where might God have had some kind of divine influence in this. I like to think that maybe God would have done that intentionally, intentionally not given us these exact words so that we wouldn't get hung up on them, which we still did, but we can we can work on that now. But back to the timeline. So Jesus lives around 30 AD. The first books of the New Testament to be written, which of course, I mean, all the wording I just said there is totally inaccurate. They were they were not books. There was no New Testament. So really what the more accurate statement would be, the first um, texts that were written, which eventually ended up being considered authoritative and added to a New Testament canon hundreds of years later, the first texts were actually the letters of Paul, or not the Gospels. So and these happened around 20 to 30 to 40 years later, it stretches. So letters like um, 1 Thessalonians and Galatians, um, Philemon, Philippians, First, uh, Second Corinthians, Romans. These were some of the very first Christian texts that we have. Um, while I say that, it's actually important to note that these are not necessarily the oldest Christian texts that we have. They are just the oldest of the ones that are now in our canon. So, of the books in the New Testament, these letters of Paul are the oldest, but there are 
other early Christian literature out there that just didn't end up being put in our New Testament. And we can talk about some of those throughout the series. Um, but as far as what's in our New Testament, the earliest literature is some of these letters of Paul. Not all of them, not um, Second, First and Second Timothy, Titus. Um, those were actually likely not written by Paul, which is a topic we will talk about later. And lest anyone be freaking out again, I think is one of those cyclical things that actually ends up feeling quite okay later on. But so that's where we start. Around 50, 60, 70 AD, we have these um, letters of Paul being written. Then around 70 AD, probably just before, which if you know, you've been listening for a while or you're familiar with um, early church history, you know 70 AD is a big year, which is the fall of Jerusalem, and that which just radically changed the relationship of Christianity with Judaism. The Gospel of Mark was probably written just before that, um, where and then the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, likely written after that, and then even later, around 90 or 100 AD, is finally the Gospel of John. Sadly, okay, so give me those again. So how many years after was the first Gospel? First Gospel written close to 70 AD. So that's 40 years after the life of Jesus. Wow. Obviously, these are, these are all estimates based on um, scholarly research that anyone can look into, but that's the, that's the estimate. Wow. Okay. 40 years. So 40 years uh, is nearly a lifetime, especially at that, at that time. So all the stuff we're talking about, about flashbulb memory, I mean, these are, these are studies that are done talking about, you know, a, a year or two or a month or a week or like not like your memory can change quite a bit in that amount of time. So I feel like that just has to go out the window completely. Like this idea that these stories we're reading are exactly what happened. The words that we're reading are exactly what happened. Like that is just not true. It just can't be true. And on that, again, to kind of emphasize, it doesn't have to be true. And right. one of the ways we know that doesn't have to be true is because, you know, a couple hundred years later, when they're putting together these books of the New Testament, they chose Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even though there's clear discrepancies between all four of those. And if that was an issue, then they would only have picked one. And they would have said, this is what really happened, not the others. But the fact that they chose multiple accounts means that in that culture, it was quite normal for multiple accounts and different versions of things because that's just what happens in an oral culture. Also, speaking of oral culture, worth noting that in an oral culture, um, stories are passed along differently than they are now. And in some ways, more reliably. Like the teachings of Jesus were taught with a a specific format. I mean, we think of some of these um, kind of one-liners like this, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Like there's a reason Jesus used that over and over again, because it would be able to be easily passed on. Or some of these stories, um, like the the threefold stories of the, you know, the woman with the lost coin and the shepherd with the lost sheep and the father with the lost son. Like there's a reason why these stories are told the way they are so that they can be passed on um, as easily as possible. So, so we have to temper our like, oh my gosh, this is 40 years later. How could they have remembered anything? We have to temper that with the fact that the stories, the teachings were told in a way that was meant to be passed on sure. as long as possible. Sure. I guess I'm saying like uh, a lost son versus a lost child. And sure, it was probably a lost son because it was a patriarchal mm-hmm. culture. But like, I, I've heard sermons preached on a specific word. Mm-hmm. And, and how like, this is so important because we, when we got to understand what Jesus meant when, when he was saying this is that, and then they go on to say yeah. what Jesus meant. It's like, wow, that's a, that's, 
a big statement to build your whole case on one, maybe two words that <laughs> that were passed down over 40 years and may not have been the exact thing that was said, which is not that big of a deal when you are trying to get the general story of Jesus and you know, and we, and I'm not saying it like diminishes Jesus at all. I'm saying don't do that with these words. Don't try to, yeah, you know, yeah, go word for word on it and say this is exactly what he said, and so this is what it means and what we should do with it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, couldn't agree more. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian. I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Well, in the rest of this um, episode, I want to do a couple case studies specifically using um, just this basic timeline, like the timeline of, first of all, Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, which is um, sadly just one book different than the way that the New Testament's set up. We're, we're all very used to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which would be nice if that was chronological, but it's not. Mark is the earliest, which you can remember because it's also the shortest, which tells you something about um, how things are elaborated over time. Um, Mark is the first, Matthew and Luke written around the same time, John at the at the latest. Right here is also worth adding in, um, and a lot of people may f be familiar with this already, but um, there is sort of another gospel that, um, that scholars refer to as Q. Um, the Q source, it's, we, ac we don't actually have it. It's all technically hypothetical, but essentially what it is, is um, we see we see that Matthew and Luke bo both drew on some of the stories from Mark and added those almost word for word into their Gospels. And then Matthew and Luke also added in almost word for word stories from somewhere else. We don't, we don't know. All we know is that we're seeing some of the exact same content show up in Matthew and Luke that doesn't exist in Mark. So scholars um, hypothesize that there, there is another just collection of the teachings of Jesus out there. We call it Q which is the Latin word for kel, which means what, because basically we, we don't know what it is. Um, so so if, you, if, if you're reading texts or, or you know, scholarly research about the formation of the New Testament and the Gospels, you'll probably read about the Q source, which is this, just a hypothetical source that probably contained a lot of the teachings of Jesus that aren't in Mark, but do show up in Matthew and Luke. So that's just an interesting tidbit. Mm, interesting, yeah. 
So we're going to look at how the timeline of when the Gospels were written matters for how we read them. We've done some of this already in the Woman series with the story of the woman who anoints Jesus, um, but we're going to look at a couple other examples that are just really interesting for how how they show some, when you read them according to the timeline of when they were written, you see different details and developments. Okay, so let's get into some of these case studies. Um, the first one is to look at the the way that Pilate's innocence and the Jews' so-called culpability is developed over time. So it's the story of Jesus when he's arrested, he's taken before Pilate, and there's, there's in, in all four Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, there's some story about how Pilate is involved and whether he, how he tries to maybe free Jesus and who's really at fault. That's kind of the, the message of this passage is like, who is really at fault here? And when we start off in Mark, so this is Mark, um, we're not going to read all of the passages, but if you want to look it up on your time, we Mark 15, 1 to 15, um, what, what we see Pilate doing here is protesting um, against the Jews saying like this man looks innocent to me, basically. And then he offers Barabbas instead. Um, so he's kind of, um, you know, basically putting this back on the Jews of like, you guys make the choice, and then they choose um, Barabbas instead of Jesus. You see the author is already kind of trying to show that Pilate's not really the one at fault, and the Jews are. And one of the reasons that that's happening already is uh, that by the time this is getting written, the persecution of the church is growing, and uh, many of the the Christians who are developing and writing these gospels down are are trying to demonstrate that um, Rome was not actually the problem, and that the Gentiles who they're preaching to are not the ones at fault, but actually it was the Jews at fault. Which any of us, I mean, hearing this, some people might be feeling some pretty big um, concerns over the anti-Semitism built into these statements. but And that's exactly where a ton of, I mean, basically all anti-Semitism from the Christian perspective came from these interpretations of the Jews being the ones who killed Jesus. So this is actually a very important um, interpretive story to be looking at and to see how that it was developed and, and the development of it can show us um, the agenda that was behind it. So we started with Mark, we see Pilate protesting, giving them the choice. The Jews chose Barabbas, so he's saying essentially, subtly, this is the, the Jews' fault. But it gets stronger. Um, if we move into Matthew, this is Matthew 27, 11 to 26, it's basically the same as Mark, like the almost word for word in most of the passage, but it adds in this element of his Pilate's wife coming to him and saying, I had this dream that this man is innocent, so don't do anything to him. And then near the end of the passage, it actually has Pilate washing his hands and saying very um, directly, like, this is not on me. This is on you and your children. And I mean, so that's a much bolder statement and much more direct than we saw in Mark. In Luke, which Matthew and Luke are often um, similar in a lot of ways because they're written around the same time and drew from a lot of the same sources. But Luke does add in a little bit in that he adds in Herod, so this other... Um, kind of authority of Rome, also Jewish, weird figure. But um, he adds in Herod and Pilate sends Jesus to Herod to kind of get his opinion and see if um, Herod will condemn him. And then, and he doesn't, he sends him back to Pilate. And then, and Pilate is doing the same thing of absolving himself of any guilt and putting it on the Jews. 
so Luke kind of emphasized yet again that like the uh, the authorities did, are not the ones condemning Jesus; it's the Jews. Then finally, we get to John. This is John eighteen twenty eight through nineteen sixteen. Um, this is the most elaborate by far. Jesus and Pilate have this long conversation about truth and what is truth and who handed you over to me and you know and when you take into consideration the fact that John was written last nearly maybe 70 years after the life of Jesus and that it contains this long dialogue that none of the other gospels have you can be fairly confident that this dialogue did not actually happen um for one probably i mean i think that nobody else was really in the room and if, if they had been, why didn't that show up on any of the earlier Gospels? Again, that might sound like one of those crazy statements of like, oh my gosh, are you saying that none of that actually happened or that Jesus didn't actually say that? But if we stop and allow ourselves to go, okay, there's, there's a reason why the authors are developing the story the way that they are, then we, we can start to be okay with the fact that yes, there is going to be, there are going to be words of Jesus that might be in red in some of our Bibles that he did not actually say. Um, and so this is probably one of those passages, but John just goes over the top with showing how Pilate is um, not the one at fault and that he's actually, um, Jesus is, this is the only time where Jesus actually says um, it is not Pilate's fault, but the one who is at fault more is the one who handed him over to you or over, handed me over to you. So Jesus is officially putting the blame on the Jews. Wow. So that's the, that's the extreme length that we get to. And that has, that's, I mean, by the time John's written, this is decades after the fall of Jerusalem. So um, the, the Christian faith is becoming more and more divided from the Jewish faith. And so there's much more um, enmity between the Jews and the Christians. And so that's why we start to see more and more of this extreme um, blame on the Jews for killing Jesus. Wow. So, okay. So you're saying that even over the course of the 30 years of the writing of the gospel, which was all all taking place 40 years after the life of Jesus. So, because Mark was written 40 years after, and then by the time John, that was 70 years around after. These are all estimates, but mm-hmm. even if we're off by a few years, yeah, right? yeah. this is quite I mean, a bit of time. Even if we're off by a decade, which we're probably not, um, it's still, yeah, quite a bit of time. You're saying we already have evidence in these gospel writings of people attempting to, you know, use the stories they have, but but craft them around the the needs of the time and what's going on in their culture and their situation at the time, which is totally an it's totally a fine thing to do. Normal practice. Normal practice, but there's so much um, pushback and frustration around trying to do that today. Mm-hmm. When you look at you know women in leadership or LGBTQ people or uh, <laughs> Slavery, right? Mm-hmm. Like fifty, hundred years. Like, there's so much pushback to that because, well, that's you know, these are the words, and they're on stone. It's like, yeah. this is what has always been happening. I always say this, you know, that the church is just like culture, but fifty years later, mm-hmm. it just follows the path of culture, and that's not a bad thing, I don't think. But and so, basically, we already see evidence of this. We already see examples of this, and this trajectory starting even with in the in the gospel writings when you look at the story of what they're doing with Pilate and you know um, absolving him of any guilt and that type of thing yeah and I mean personally my favorite one is the story of the woman who anointed Jesus which if you haven't haven't heard that one um, it's in our women series I totally encourage you to go back and look at that but um, we do have to acknowledge that the authors of 
these gospels are making intentional decisions to shape stories, um, to influence the way people think. And I mean, we could we could think of that in a super kind of underhanded way, like they're trying to lie to us, but that's just, that's not the case. But the reason why that does sound so threatening, the idea that, you know, someone like Luke or Matthew, that you know, whoever the author was that was putting these words down onto the parchment, the idea that they would have been making decisions in order to tell the story the way they thought it should be told. Like that does sound threatening, but the only reason it sounds threatening is because we've grown up with the idea that it shouldn't be that way. We've been told that these are all true. Every word of them really happened. All of the gospels are, you know, they're all saying the same thing and there's they're all divinely inspired by God. The the authors only wrote the words that God wanted them to write. If we hadn't been taught that, which we didn't need to be taught that, the Bible does not teach that, then we wouldn't have an issue with the fact that there are clearly human agendas at play in these texts of the first century. And in my experience, it's in knowing these truths of like, there are human agendas at play, um, context and culture that you're in, like determines what you end up writing and the way you end up writing it. Like it's in knowing all these things that has actually allowed me to re-engage with mm. the Bible in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think I was given a, and I used to teach and give other people this like very um, all or nothing kind of approach to it, right? Mm -hmm. It's like this is, you either accept it as this thing or you just need to completely leave it all together. And that that take it or leave it kind of, dichotomy, I guess, is first of all, driving so many people away because they're like, well, but I know it's not that. Like the more we find out about just, you know, just every every year, every decade, we are our findings and our archaeology and our studies of ancient texts and all we learn more and more things. And uh, it's just harder and harder to accept it for except for the all or nothing that we were given. And so there's a lot of those, there's a lot of the nothings, people just leaving it and saying, I'm not going to engage with that at all then, because it's not what they said it was. And I guess I'm just saying, and maybe we're just saying, there's a there's another way to approach this. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's kind of the ancient text angle. It doesn't mean that there's not really important things here. It doesn't mean that, and we'll talk about divinity, and we'll talk about inspiration, and we'll mm -hmm. talk about all that kind of stuff. But we're not even really getting to that yet. But just viewing the Bible and viewing these authors for what they are and for what they were trying to be and not hiding what they they were not mm -hmm. hiding this it's clearly right there yeah. um it it allows you to engage with this thing again and appreciate it for what it is and and not have to ditch it completely or accept it fully in the way that we were told we have to accept it yeah i mean maybe it's a helpful mental exercise to like imagine yourself as a early Christian living in, let's say, Jerusalem or maybe Antioch or something around, you know, maybe 80 to 90 AD, um, the, you, your church is kind of just a group of people who come and you maybe have a copy of one of the letters of Paul. Maybe you've, you know, somehow acquired a copy of First Corinthians but likely you don't have any texts at all. Likely you come and you retell some of the same stories. You probably read out of the Hebrew Bible if you're a Jewish group. Um, and then, you know, maybe you get word of like, there's, you know, someone's writing down 
um, an account, kind of a, a biography of Jesus. And you're like, wow, that's, you know, this is incredible. Maybe we can all travel to the city where that's going to be read or something. Like it's, nobody's thinking, great, God sent down like this perfect account of what happened and now we will never forget. It's like, oh no, what all that's happening is, you know, we're realizing that the generation who walked with Jesus, these disciples, they're getting old and they're dying and we, we, we want someone to write something down before they're gone. And so they're not seeing, like the, the people who were first reading these texts would see no problem with the fact that there's differences and that there's, you know, oh, wow, that story is being told way different in this text than the way we were telling it in our little church. Like that's, that's just part of what it means to be in the first century and to be at the beginning of a religion and to be developing who this figure even is. Um, and that, and that actually leads me to the other case study that I wanted to do, which is about the, the person of Jesus and his identity as human or divine or some mix of both. So a little bit of an essential topic to, to most Christians, but, (laughs) but even that is, is something that we see developing over just the four gospels. So let's quickly, I want to just take a look at essentially where, where is Jesus divinity where does Jesus' divinity begin according to um, these, these Gospels? So, first Gospel, Mark, written earliest. Um, we'll notice that there's no birth story in Mark. Like, it starts just saying, this is the Gospel of Jesus, John the Baptist is doing cool things, and then Jesus comes and is baptized. And that is the, the really the beginning moment. Right, in like Mark. the dove yeah. comes down and like that's the kind of the anointing type thing. Exactly. It's this anointing, this Jesus or this God commissioning Jesus and saying, This is my son. That's the moment. There's no other more defining moment in Mark. He never even mentions Jesus' birth. Mark has no need for a virgin or anything like that. Jesus Jesus is anointed and chosen in this moment of baptism. Not something that we usually teach, but that's the way it is in Mark. Then let's move to Matthew and Luke. Both of these have a birth account involving um, some kind of angel or virgin birth, and and Jesus essentially is becoming Emmanuel, this God with us when he's born, and he is this um, unique being that's never quite existed before. So for Matthew and Luke, it happens at birth. But then we go to our last gospel, the gospel of John, Again, oh, no birth account yeah. because to in the John, beginning. yeah, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John doesn't need a virgin birth either because Jesus has been God wow. from the very beginning. So that's a far, far cry from Mark. And it doesn't, none of those necessarily tell us what is actually true, who Jesus actually was. It, wouldn't it be nice if one of them was just, and by the way, I'm right, and all the rest are wrong. But well, I think we've always works. said they're all right, right? They were yeah. all, he was there in the beginning. He was born of you know, a virgin, and he also was anointed at baptism. But there is a sense in which that, that doesn't quite work, right? If my, yeah, sorry, and they, they like could, they could all be true. Right, if right, anything, right. I think, yeah, we're used to harmonizing them, and they could all coexist. You could have this divine being who's been eternally present, who's then born of a virgin, and then also anointed at baptism. Those things could all happen. And that's the way we're used to thinking of it. But when that, and this is why I bring it up in the conversation regarding a timeline. When we look at it 
along the timeline and say, this is the one that was first. These happened later. This one was written latest. Like it, there's a clear development. If John was first and then you had Matthew and then Mark and then Luke later, and they're all kind of mixed together, then that might change it. But the fact that they're written specifically in this order of clearly kind of a, a more human to a more divine is something that we have to at least stop and notice. So there's a couple more that I, we're not going to do in this um, episode, but if you want to look into it on your own time, um, you can have your own Bible study. You could do it as a group. You could do it in your devotional time tomorrow. I don't know. Well, what's cool is, um, and people discuss this kind of stuff all the time over in the Facebook group, and if you want to be a part of that, you can go to almostheretical.com and... Um, and, and join that Facebook group. So as you look into some of these passages, like it'd be great to get some of that conversation going over there. Yeah, and I I personally just found that it was really nice to have a reason to kind of get into my Bible again. I mean, for some people, maybe you're like, I don't want to even get close to it. Although you are listening to this episode, so you probably have some kind of interest. But it's, it's nice to be able to dig into these passages that we've read over and over again and start to see things that we didn't see before. So, so if you want to keep doing some of this comparison with kind of the timeline of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and then John, um, some interesting stories that you could look into, obviously the woman who anoints Jesus, but then you could also look at pa- the parallels of the story of Peter's denial and how those shift throughout the Gospels. And then most interestingly, look at the resurrection and how that account develops over time. So that kind of wraps it up for what we're going to address in this episode, but looking forward to the rest of the series, um, I'm so excited to dive into specifically the concept of inspiration and what its role was in canonization. We'll totally piece apart the that verse about how all scriptures God breathed and what how does that have any role in what we believe about scripture, uh, what is scripture, all that kind of stuff. Um, kinds of things. What is What does God breathe mean? What does inspiration mean? How did the early church fathers use that? Was it even required for canonization? So we're going to talk about all of that. We'll talk about Paul and the letters of Paul and the letters that were written in his name, but not necessarily written by him. Again, one of those scary cyclical statements that we will talk about more in depth. We'll talk about the Council of Nicaea and what really happened there. Um, we'll talk about the Reformation um, centuries later and how that affected our perspective of the Bible. And then finally, at the end of our series, we'll look at m- multiple canons that are in existence today and other um, strains of Christianity like Ethiopian Orthodox who don't actually even use a canon and are still Christian. So we have a lot to do and I can't wait to get into it. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm super excited. And if you made it to this point in the episode, I want to like W a super fan. You are <laughs> you are like a committed super fan of the show. And so because you made it to this point in the episode and maybe others didn't, you get some uh, news. And <laughs> the news is that news is. <laughs> Shelby and I are married now. Woo-hoo! And uh, this is now a married podcast, I guess. <laughs> um, and yeah, we... If you're a patron of the show and you were on our last Zoom call, you were technically the first to hear about this. <laughs> and um, Some of you had uh, guessed this quite a while yeah, ago. Yeah. It's fun to find out. Yeah, so if you guessed this, send an email, contact at Almost Heretical. I want to hear when you first knew. But anyways, also, we'd love to hear you on the, uh, see you on the next Zoom call that we do. It's coming up shortly. You can go to almostheretical.com and sign up for that RSVP. We have so much fun on these calls um, and also in the Facebook group too, but the calls just are just real fun where we get to like see your faces and interact and talk with all of you. So we'd love to see you on there. And I'm telling you because you made it to this point in the episode and you're a super supporter, super fan of the show. All right. 
Um, We will catch you next time as we continue with the series. Thanks for listening. 